This is the Legacy Builder Podcast, show number seven. To make sure that when opportunities present themselves, you're able to step into those roles uh, quickly and be the person they are able to pick and there's no barriers that stop you from taking those jobs. Mm-hmm. You're listening to the Legacy Builder Podcast. Seeking out successful people to learn how they got their start, what drives them, and what they want their legacy to be. This show is to document the success of the people around us and have it to learn from for years to come. If you're here to be inspired, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and enjoy the conversation. Welcome in to the seventh episode of the Legacy Builder Podcast. This is Chris Gibson, along with my co-host, Megan Gibson, and we have a very impressive guest on the show today. A few of the awards he has received have been the Army Distinguished Service Medal, the Legion of Merit, and he got that twice, and then the Bronze Star Medal, uh, and that's just to name a few of his accolades. In his career, he has started from the bottom and really worked his way up to the highest position of leadership in two of Oklahoma's most respective organizations. And this is all done while serving in the Oklahoma National Guard. Uh, So his last two stops before his well-deserved retirement were the Oklahoma Highway Patrol, where he served as chief for five years. And then the last four years of his career, he served as the director of the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. So, like I said, our guest is very impressive, and to be honest, that is probably an understatement. So, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Uh, We are very excited and honored to have Mr. Rick Adams as our guest today, and we know you're a busy man. Well, not so much now. You're retired, But still, we, we really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to sit down with us today. Well, uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to come and uh, speak with both of y'all. Uh, you know, as you were talking to me, give me a little bit of the introduction, kind of what's going to go on before you said the word, you know, talking to cool people. And I'm like, well, I have to savor that for just a moment. <laughs> I, I don't know that I've ever been, I've ever been thought I was considered oh, yeah, that really. You're top, of, you're top of the list. Hey, anybody that has done and been the places that you've been, I consider very cool and yes. very uh interesting and I can, somebody I can consider I can learn a lot from so yeah so we'll just start out with you know kind of tell us about where you grew up and how you kind of got into the mindset of you wanted to go into the military well uh, I was born in Elk City Oklahoma and uh, grew up out there uh, had my father was a Baptist pastor there in the area. And, uh, you know, as we, uh, as I grew up, uh, felt like that I had a calling to do something, uh, that calling, I didn't know uh, at first, I thought it might've been to follow my dad's footsteps and be a pastor. I realized for fairly early in my teenage years that that's probably not what the good Lord meant for me to do. Uh, however, I did feel that the service was part of that. Uh, the, 
at that particular time, you know, we didn't have all the cool things to, you know, get in the military and they give you education and stuff. This is just post Vietnam. And, uh, uh, you know, I felt like it was my duty to uh, serve my country. And uh, I enlisted in the military and uh, joined the Oklahoma National Guard uh, here in Oklahoma. Uh, senior year in high school, uh, I attended a course uh, that was called the Cadet Lawman Academy that the Highway Patrol sponsors out at Burns Flat at the time. And uh, uh, I caught the bug. That was it. I, I realized that this was the calling that uh, that I was meant to do. And my joining the military, everything else at that point in time was really as a chance to have a opportunity to someday get selected to do that. Uh, little did I know that uh, I would have pretty good success in both areas. The thing that the National Guard provided is it gave you a a path to have both. I had a, my, my wife, I met her in high school. Uh, we were high school sweethearts and uh, uh, she has been, uh, you know, really the biggest supporter of all this along the way. Uh, she's dealt with me being gone for, you know, months at a time and being involved in some, you know, high profile, uh, you know, high uh, uh, danger kind of issues over the years. And uh, the same thing with, you know, with OSBI dealing with that as you kind of come up to the ranks. Yeah, I mean, this, the, all of those areas, like you said, service is such a big thing and it's not about, it wasn't about money for you, right? I mean, Never there's was. probably not much money in that for, especially for the, what you're putting your life at stake. You know, how do you put money, you know, a price on that? So just the fact that guys like you, girls like you that are willing to sacrifice it all for others is an awesome thing and we sure appreciate that service side of the stuff that, that you have put out Thank there. You. Yeah, definitely. Whenever you said earlier that you went to the school and you caught the bug, was there anything specific that you had learned that you were like, yes, I want to be a part of that? To put a finger on something specifically, uh, not really. Uh, I just I knew a lot of the people that was in the area that I grew up in uh, with the Highway Patrol. I had tremendous respect for the, the fellows that were there in that area at the time. Uh, and then to get a chance to go to the school and be out there and see all the things that uh, it offered and the, all of it kind of together, I was I could see that you know this was something I really would like to try to do. And at the time, you know, I was I was a kid. I mean, yeah. eighteen. You yeah. know, let's, let's figure out what we're going to do with our life, and you're you're looking forward to work what you would like to accomplish over the years and uh, you know we kind of learned as you go uh, you know each of the organizations I went to you know came up through the ranks in those organizations you know, lots of people have businesses that they build and they're building it on their own and it's all on them played ball in school uh, was a big team sport guy you know uh, three athletic events that I was involved in for my sophomore to my my uh, senior year things I was involved in were team events. Mm -hmm. You didn't do any of it by yourself. And uh, as you become a, a leader in all of those, you know, an officer in the military, uh, as they call it brass, or just a leadership within the other organization, there's uh, certain things you had to learn along the way uh, to uh, mentor the people that was under you and to inspire followers to follow you so you could accomplish a mission. 
you want to be the guy in front of the uh-huh. in front of the wagon yeah. going up the hill. You don't want to have to push everybody over top of it. It sure makes things a lot easier to run if uh, they like to do things, even if they're hard things, willingly on their own. Which obviously you have that characteristic because you went from starting at being in the highway patrol to working all the way up to the director of OSBI. That doesn't just happen overnight. What are some of the things that you would attribute that success from? You know, uh, uh, first of all, faith is a big deal. Uh, Character matters and uh, it matters to uh, the people that you lead. It matters to organizations that you're part of. And I'm I'm not talking about being a character. I'm talking about ethics, uh, doing your best to be somebody that they can inspire to follow. Uh, That's important as a leader that you can uh, do those kind of things. As we uh, come up to the ranks, I think, you know, uh, you've had mentors over the years. And for me, I remember early on, uh, went to college, tried out of school. It had a scholarship to play ball, football. And my wife and I decided not to go. We got married early. And uh, uh, so we went back to school a little at a time, like a lot of people do mm-hmm. in, in their life. And so I went back and I got, at the time, I got just enough hours. I thought it was good enough to get in highway patrol and get me covered. I had about, I had my associates and I felt like I was pretty much going to be good for life. Mm-hmm. And I had a mentor of mine in the military that was, uh, for South is his name. He was uh, one of my battalion commanders. And at the time, I was a uh, fire corrections uh, officer for the battalion. And he came up to me and he, he gave me this pep talk and told me about, you know, Rick, you, you're really good. You know, one of the best uh, officers I've got. Do a great job in this assignment and everything like that. But then he, tried, then he told me, but you probably will not make it that past major. And I'm looking at him, I'm like, going, well, that was kind of an odd thing to do. Tell me that I'm kind of the best guy you got, but then you're not going to make yeah. a pass major. Why, yeah. Why, why, why is that? He says, Rick, you got to go get your degree. He says, the, I can tell you right now, you, there's going to be people you're going to competing against, you know, in a, a 500,000 man army. People you're going to be competing against in the future that are all going to have degrees mm-hmm. and they're all going to be just as good as you. And it's kind of like in athletics, you know, you got people who are just as good as you, and you find that out when you meet, you meet them on a field out, out someplace. So you've got to be prepared for whatever they start comparing people that don't know you start comparing mm-hmm. comparing folks they especially they, comparing you just on paper on paper uh, you get sifted mm-hmm. you know off the deal so checking boxes off that checking boxes off I mean they're looking at they're looking at all the cool stuff that you've done and things like that too but they're also going down the list and going you know what's the potential of this guy going you know to be a four star someday mm-hmm. or even to make colonel so they check those things off so I decided maybe it was time to make that decision to go back and finish school. We banged it out there, uh, got uh, got the degree, and I say that for when you're looking at you know building things. Uh, There's a long story to get to that point. To make sure that when opportunities present themselves, you're able to step into those roles. Uh, 
quickly and be the person that they are able to pick and there's no barriers that stop you from taking those jobs mm-hmm. like not having your degree right. you know at the time the jobs we the jobs you know are looking for that weren't required but they're preferred mm-hmm. and so uh, that preference helps you kind of move the ball up the field you might say and use an analogy in football to uh, be able to move to the, to the next step so uh, uh, you know you want to be tactically proficient, you know, whether that be in law enforcement, the military. You want to be knowledgeable of your job and know how you, you're able to, uh, you know, to lead people or inspire them to do things. Know what the principles are that you know that you're, you're trying to accomplish, and the craft. Be good at the craft that you're doing, and be educationally and professionally qualified to do that, and not have stuff in your background that would like say keep you from getting a security clearance and stuff right. like that. That kind yeah. of stuff. So very cool. Rick, can you walk me through a little bit of how it works? So where you, you know, you said right out of high school, you went and got your associates. Did you just roll right into the National Guard or did you work OHP and National Guard? How did that work? Well, I, uh, I did what a lot of kids do coming out of school after my wife and I got married. Uh, we, you know, both had jobs. Yeah, both tried to go to school uh, a little at a time. So we didn't like go off to the college life and spend there. So we kind of, you know, we got six hours here, 12 hours here, a semester down here. Uh, so during the time, early time of my uh, my career, I worked for the Elk City and the Edmond Police Departments. And so uh, uh before I went to work at Elk City, which I was 20 when I started school there, I had pretty much 30, 35 hours of uh, school uh, down. And so uh, uh, when I went to work at Edmond PD, Edmond had a uh, uh, program where they'd help pay for some of the tuition and stuff that, that, that you get. So I went back to school there and I, uh, Almost, I got up to close to being finished. I probably was in the 90 hour or so hour level there. Uh, when I went to work for the highway patrol, uh, you know, got on there and was uh, working for the patrol. And it was a, probably 1990, somewhere like that when I finished my bachelor's. So, uh, but it was in the traditional night school kind of method. I can remember at one point in time, my uh, daughter, uh, oldest daughter, and uh, actually my both daughters were w- actually went with me to one of the classes. So I was like, going, you'll have to, you'll have to sit here and be very quiet. It's very hard for them. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, just, that's life though. That's, that's the grind. I, that's why, I, I mean, I didn't know that about you, that you, that's kind of how you made it work and it wasn't where you just had it handed to you like okay this is what you're gonna do you I mean it was a grind to get to where you were and that's a a great uh, lesson for all of us to learn it's it's not easy well and I think that's what's inspiring so much about not only you but you and your wife Kathy Adams is that you guys both saw opportunities and you saw that maybe it needed this certain education or these certain experiences. And no matter where you were in life of maybe just getting married or just having kids or even being maybe on that back end of your career, both of you guys saw those opportunities, ran towards them and kept it going. For those who don't know, and we were talking about this before the podcast had started, uh, Rick's wife, Kathy, was a court clerk for uh, 20 something long year, yeah, years. Yeah, for a long time. And she had decided after at least 20 years that 
She was in her 50s. Yeah, she was in her 50s that she had wanted to go back to law school to become an attorney and ended up at the attorney general's office. So I think both of you guys are so inspiring that you don't let anything stop you from what you're wanting to accomplish. Well, I think that, uh, you know, one thing is a family, you know, especially when you got a good partner, uh, and Kathy is that. Uh, we, uh, everything we did, we worked together. It was not like one of us just decided to do something. It was, you know, these were, this was a team event as we went through, as we went through life. And uh, uh, having that uh, solid partner there, you know, I'm not saying that we have never disagreed on anything or anything like that, but, but uh, you know, we've, uh, We've worked together to, to get to those points, and you know she uh, she worked at the uh, uh, district attorney's office for for quite a while as a, originally as kind of the head felony uh, secretary. She had been encouraged by many of her mentors to go to law school, and she just never never did. And then uh, we decided, and as one of the benefits of being in the military, especially at this point in time. Uh, Whenever uh, she was ready to go back to school, uh, I didn't need, I had a master's degree by that point in time, and I didn't need the uh, Montgomery GI Bill. Uh, but you can pass the Montgomery GI Bill to a family member. Oh, very and nice. so I was able to pass uh, my benefits to her and she finished her college and got her law degree with it. So, so it's a great, great benefit uh, that you get. What is I mean, she helped you get to where you were, that paid off. It was her turn. Yeah, it was her turn to, to reap those rewards that I said she helped you get. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, go for it. <laughs> We had went to a went to the Hog Patrol, uh, joined the ranks there. Uh, come up uh, there, actually worked Logan County area uh, for the first ten years of my career. Uh, Around what time was that? Do you remember? Eighty six to ninety six. Okay, right in that, that, that area. So, so when you were in that, sorry, I just want to kind of get in your head a little bit when you get into that role of you're just out on patrol, right? You're mm -hmm. just a. Did you ever think in your head, I want to run this whole operation at some point? Never crossed my mind. Yeah. Never crossed my mind. So you it just was, kept your head down and worked hard. And you yeah. worked hard. You tried to do. Uh, you tried to do the right thing. Uh, you know, you, uh, you you were a good officer, uh, but you were ready to step into the role of, you know, to the next level, uh, mainly for your family, and uh, uh, if you you know to benefit them uh, over the years is, you know, if you had a chance to get for a promotion or something like that, that come along. Uh, I was a, a fairly gifted at a, a drug trafficking uh, uh, interdiction and was able to, you know, kind of make a note for myself a little bit in the city with that. It wasn't like that was a plan. It just, it just come that way. kind of got noticed, I guess, uh, by the uppers, and then uh, uh, you know, took the exam, went through the went through the process, and uh, you know, the board processes that they go through for selection. And after I made that first step to a, a supervisor, my first assignment as a lieutenant was uh, with the Highway Patrol. And was that after Logan County? That was after Logan County. Okay, so then uh, you went to go be a supervisor. Yeah, I was a lieutenant and. Oklahoma City Metro, which was a little bit different than, yeah. <laughs> than up here. Yeah. But uh, uh, come up to the ranks there, uh, commanded our special operations troop a little later, uh, then you know, moved up to my ranks 
uh, what they call a, a zone commander, uh, which is a, over a you know, large region of the, of the state, uh, the major uh, serving that position for for probably about eight years. Uh, and then uh, uh, deputy chief, and then uh, in 2011 was appointed as assistant commissioner by Mike Thompson, which uh, General Thompson was the uh, was uh, the edge or the uh, commissioner at the time, and uh, uh, moved into the into that role there, and uh, was with the patrol uh, for that, and then. They asked me to move over and take over the uh, patrol and serve there for a little over four years for, for uh, you know, looking to retire. And I was on the path to retire at that point in time. Mm-hmm. really thought we were uh, kind of... when was that? That would have been in 2018, okay. uh, January of 18, uh, when uh, another one of my mentors, uh, Bob Ricks, uh, uh, gave me a call and uh, I'd kind of made a name for myself over the years of being able to kind of, I want to say, fix troubled organizations or places that had, had things going on. And they'd asked me to go over to the uh, OSBI. And uh, that's where I went to at the time. And I was there until I decided that it was time for well, me. It's time. To, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's time. Time to step uh, away. The, the beauty of it all is being able to kind of. Uh, was able to do most all of this at the same time serving in a second capacity. And I'll say this thing about uh, DPS, uh, because all the military service was while I was with DPS and before. Uh, being able to carry a dual life on uh, with a, you know, a reserve component career and uh, a law enforcement career is tough. And, uh, you, you know, you give up pretty much most of your weekends and lots of times during the summers. And uh, after 9-11, uh, you know, that job blurred lots of times between whether it was active or it was not. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, uh, you know, we, I got uh, mobilized uh, my daughter Caitlin's senior year. Uh, we were mobilized for the first of the ground war in Iraq. And uh, I was a brigade commander at the time and we prep the brigade uh, for, you know, high spectrum, full spectrum operations and, uh, you know, against the Iraqis and uh, uh, got our brigade uh, validated for combat, loaded on a railhead. And then, you know, the president landed on the aircraft carrier deck, said the war's over. And they, we kind of hung around for at Fort Sill for uh, a month before they decided to stand the brigade down. And then in 2005, I was asked to go on active duty and serve as the deputy assistant commandant at the Field Artillery School at Fort Sill. So uh, uh, I took that opportunity when it went up. Uh, honored to be asked to do that, and the uh, guard uh, did. My job gave me a leave of absence, military leave of absence for that period of time. Uh, I think they didn't realize I wouldn't be back till 2007. <laughs> You you were away from your actual job for how many years? Two years. Over two years, years, yeah. Uh, And of course, at that point in time, I served as that. Uh, I served as the director of the National Police Program in uh, Afghanistan. I was there, uh, was, was. Pulled over there, kind of interesting when you get called to the job. I was at a warfighter exercise in Fort Lewis, Washington. Uh, at about 9.30 at night, I get a call from the 
Pentagon, basically, going, hey, Rick, what are you doing? What you doing? Uh, would you be able to deploy pretty quick if we needed you? Well, that's what you asked us to do. If you need me to go, just tell me when. Uh -huh. Okay, well, well, it's probably going to be pretty quick. That was on Valentine's Day, and I think it's March 3rd. I was standing at Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan. So wow. Kathy didn't get much notice. Oh, man. <laughs> hey, dear, we're, I'm, I'll be gone for a while. <laughs> yeah. So tell us a little bit about when you were over in that on that deployment your son-in-law he was there with you right uh zach was uh deployed at the same he didn't deploy on the same mission he deployed with the uh, uh, the 45th infantry brigade had uh, mobilized one of the battalions and they'd went as a round out battalion uh for another brigade that was there and uh, he was i think with the 180th at the time and uh they were there on the ground for a year uh they got there, I think, just a little bit after I'd arrived. Uh, of course, they're on a totally different mission uh, from where I'm at. It's over Camp Phoenix, some pretty Eggers, and uh, my job, we were all over the country. I mean, okay. one into one into the other, uh, uh, dealing with, you know, thanks to trying to stand up a national police force in the middle of a war zone, mm -hmm. which is a completely foreign concept to many people mm -hmm. that want to talk about community policing it's hard to have community policing if you don't have stability to start with right. and so it's a uh, that was a, a real real challenge uh, zach was there at the same time uh, we only got to run into each other once and that's because of the the position i was in i had the, a little bit more freedom of movement around the country uh, when i needed to go i was going to be at camp phoenix anyway so i stopped there there and I asked, uh, hey, can I see Specialist Lloyd? And uh, he about had a heart attack because uh, uh, some sergeant went uh, running to get Lloyd, said, hey, Lloyd, there's a bird colonel out there and he's looking for you. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> He gets out there and like, oh, it's just my father-in-law. We, 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 we went and we went and talked. Really, what a small world yeah. in that, and you got to see your son-in-law. You know, uh, halfway across the world, and you still get to run into each other. My him, you know, my daughter and some other son-in-law also serve. Uh -huh. uh, both of them spent uh, time in Iraq and, and Afghanistan. So we've had the, the whole family's been in it. Been there. Caitlin's been taking care of everybody back home. Oh, and, you know, it's yeah. just a great job at Chesapeake. She does really good there. Well, that's what I'm going to talk just a little bit about your daughter and your wife. You know, your daughter had a father and a husband across in a war zone. You know, that just shows you right there that even though she didn't serve, she served. Mm -hmm. You know, Caitlin, uh, you know, she she went through uh, her time uh, back here. Uh, you know, Diane was on the way, you know, uh, you say war baby, yeah. uh, you know, because uh, Zach, Zach was gone and he, he's on he's on the way. And uh, uh, she's here, uh, you know, with the parents kind of back her up. It was a uh, experience for them to really uh, go through that, to, you know, support uh, both husband and dad overseas. And then uh, shortly later, I, I just got back. I think Zach had just gotten back from overseas whenever my oldest daughter, Ricky and Ron, had deployed. And uh, they went simultaneously. We were the family care plan for them for a year. So we got the, uh, Kathy and I had been empty nesters. Yeah. And we suddenly got a 18 month and a three and a half year old wow. yeah, at the house for a year uh, while they were deployed to Iraq. It was, we had to step our game back up. Yeah. <laughs>
Because you remember that it's handed over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it all come back to you real, yeah. real quick. But it, you know, it's, it was a family event. But you know, Kathy and Caitlin have were absolute rocks through the entire thing. I, I, I mean, I cannot uh, praise them any more than that. Whenever you're saying earlier that really you were just led to be a public servant and that's what you wanted to do, not only did you become a public servant, but really you had kind of ingrained that in your family too of we are servants and, you know, they followed in your footsteps in that. And I just know for me personally, I'm very appreciative of all of the sacrifices that your entire family has had to make and especially I know as Ricky being a young mom and her and her husband both having to leave, those are tough situations that I don't think everyone recognizes and appreciates that that happens often. Happens a lot more often than people realize as it does. When you're a dad, you always are worry a little bit about your sons having to go off someday if there's a conflict someplace. It crosses your mind. You never think about it being your daughters. Yeah. And, you know, whenever uh, whenever Ricky deployed, she deployed as a, she was a company commander of a signal company, in the, you know, in the middle of a war zone. And, you know, as your daughter, it kind of, even though you've been there and done that, I think that makes you more nervous. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know that's going on. Yeah. Well, I want to talk a little bit. You kind of have named off a few things that you either you put together in your head or somebody had taught you about leadership. Can you talk a little bit about that, those things that you just talked about and how you kind of came up with those? You know, there's a lot of things that uh, you pick up over the years, uh, leadership principles, basically, that you've, you've learned either from, you know, uh, your time in the military or from uh, mentors over the years. Uh, I think, you know, one of the, Big things to, especially in jobs like mine that I've had over the years, that you need to realize is that uh, leadership is a privilege, it's not a right. Uh, you don't just, you know, get your degree and go to the school and show up one day and, hey, here I am. You know, uh, these are things that you have to work for. You're Velcroed into the chair because the jobs themselves are not meant for positions for life. Uh, they're going to be replaced by younger generations and you're a temporary occupant of the chair. So you do your best to uh Perform at a level that you can accomplish the mission that you've been given to accomplish and to improve the organization so you can hand it off better to the next person. And that's what you, you, you try to accomplish. Uh, you know, you look at things that, uh, you know, it can help you force multipliers for your, your organization. You know, there's you know, some corny things like, uh, you know, uh, uh, poor attitude uh, toward life, toward your job, toward everything else. Really don't expect for stuff, other stuff to follow that because uh, it's, it's probably not. A positive attitude can be a force multiplier. Uh, it is a force multiplier in everything that, everything that you do. Uh, even when you're in bad situations, uh, people don't want to follow the negative Nelly mm -hmm. up the hill. Yeah. Uh, that's not the person you want to go after. You want to go after somebody that at least seems like that they have a, a, a thought that they can be successful. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. And that's, you know, you said it a while ago. It's a lot easier to, you know, be the leader that people want to follow instead of being the one back there having to push them over that hill. Mm -hmm. You know, 
talk a little bit about what you meant by that and how how do you inspire people to follow you instead of having to push people well you know uh i think it's first important to realize that everybody we lead is in the human dimension the people that you are leading have their own fears they have their own families they live in their world and you're trying to inspire these people to follow you and to sometimes uh, maybe not necessarily something that they want to do. And so I think it's important to know them. You need to understand how how they uh, they, they operate. Uh, you know, I've always been mission first. So whatever the mission that your organization had, uh, you focused on that and you, you stayed focused on that mission. Well, that didn't mean to the detriment of the people that were underneath you. you You've got to kind of find a way to balance the two of those things to where you can accomplish what you need to need to do. Whatever the craft that you're in, you need to have a level of core competency in it. That you, uh, uh, you know, it really wouldn't matter if you're a blacksmith or a cop or a soldier. Uh, you need to, to know your craft that you'd be able to perform it uh, under stress uh, in a hurry when you, had, when you had to. For me, everything that we do has been about citizens that we are bound to protect and about the people that we lead. So uh, you want to make sure you take care of the folks that work for you and you, you care for their needs and you make sure that uh, you know their families and you, you do everything you can to, uh, to deal with that, knowing that you could be asking them to do something that could be high stress, high risk to them personally. And so in the mission being to protect the people that you're, you're, you're sworn to serve. A lot of people have in organizations, you have these things called dog and cat loyalty. And I, you know, some people think it's cool to be dog loyal to the person that's above them. And lots of times in business, people think that that is what they want. I would venture to say that cat loyal people, though I love dogs, <laughs> so, are probably the, the ones that you most like to have around you. Those are folks that are loyal to the house, and the house being your organization that you're 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 leading and stuff. They're the people that when you ask them, when you ask them to tell you the truth, that they'll actually look you in the eye and tell you the truth and do it without uh, being afraid that you're mm -hmm. gonna be mean to them or something. I never heard cat loyalty, and I love that. I'm gonna use that. Yeah. The fact that you said, you know, that cat loyalty is, it's about the house, right? And to, I love that because I want people to challenge me. Megan and I, we, we talk all the time. And I think what makes us good partners on the business side of stuff is we're not afraid to tell each other, that's kind of a dumb idea. Or it's good. That's Red a great is not idea. the best color. Yeah. We, have, <laughs> we, were, we have an argument a lot. <laughs> so we were working on signs. She's like, I don't like red. And I'm like, I love red. And then we asked somebody else, they're like, no, just the blue. And she's like, told you. Told you. So, yeah. you know, but that's the thing is, I want that person that's going to challenge me. I don't care if it's somebody that works for me. I don't care if it's somebody that's above me. If they bring me something that I haven't thought of and they're challenging me on something, I can go, you know what? That's a great idea. Let's try to work on that. Let's work on that together and let's make it our project. And I'm going to give you as much credit as, as I am because that's something that you brought to me that's going to make the house better. So I love, I love that idea of having that person around you. It's good to have those people there. Uh, you know, I've always told folks that's worked for me over the years, if I asked you what you think, I want to know what you think. 
uh, not what you think I want to hear. Yeah. Yeah, because it's hard to find people who will tell you what they think. Exactly. But part of that's the environment that you put them in to start with. So a lot of this takes, you know, time to build trust. And, you know, trust is easily broken. Mm-hmm. I always believe, you know, when it comes to, you know, dealing with your people, the, the old saying, praise in public and criticize in private. I've always felt that that was a good for helping to build uh, trust with people. I love the aspect of trust and Chris and I talk a lot about what makes anyone successful in a business is really run off of trust or anything is run off of trust. And if you break that trust, it's hard to have people want to use you, want to follow you. Um, so I love that. I, I want somebody to challenge me, but as a leader, you have got to be willing to hear something you don't want to hear because I, I don't want to ask people tell me what you think not what I, you think I want to hear but I don't I want to put that person in a position to be able to trust that I'm not going to blow up I want to I want to be that leader of, that's going to go you know what thank you so much for your uh, honesty I'm going to work on myself I think there's an important fine line that you also have to realize and you know understanding uh, my careers, I've had a chance to have staffs, and sometimes they were fairly large staffs. And so it's important to have not only that trust, but be able to listen to different input. At some point in time, as the leader, you are the person that has to pick the course of action. Uh-huh. And uh, that responsibility rests a few. Uh-huh. I mean, not with all them. You're right. the one that made, made the choice. Using that, uh, to have that, to help build that trust, to work on that, once the decision is made, it's time for us all to get on the same same sheet of music and move mm-hmm. forward. You know, as a leader, you, you can't fast light and ping pong around uh, a lot. Uh, when you're having to, you bring a team together, you come up with a game plan, and you move forward with it. You just know that you can't be so locked into that plan that uh, you're not able to make changes if you need to on the fly. Which I did see in your notes, you had said change really is a core competency, that it doesn't always have to be your way or the highway. And I think too, in a leader, a good leader is you also have good discernment of what is the right path, you know, and then to be able to realize I thought this was the right path. It's not working out so well. So we're going to switch gears. Change has got to be a core competency in anything we do today. And when I started, are dramatically different. Mm-hmm. Teletype to the internet. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> to, you know, yeah, you know, everything has changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I got into the Army, we were all analog. Uh, as an artillery officer, it was darts and charts, it was uh, uh, slide rules, and, you know, figuring out, you know, where were you shooting at and what you're, what you're at and moving stuff. Uh, at the end of my career, we're talking moving things digitally and high speed, you know, high over satellites and uh, communication networks, you know, halfway around the world. So change has got to be a core competency. How, you know, that, those, that time that you spent in patrol, on the road, in those police, on those police forces, what, how, how big was that experience going forward as a, in a leadership position? They're huge. Having a good understanding and have lived the 
experience of getting called out in the middle of the night and responding to, you know, I was one of the responders to Oklahoma City bombing and some of the other things that you were, you were there on the ground, you know, when people were, were crying and things were burning and stuff like that. You were there in the middle of it uh, uh, doing the things you need to do. It's an experience that you have uh, that you need to understand for those people that are going through the same experiences underneath you. Those experiences help build on each level and help you kind of understand the broader organizational cultures and the things that you're trying to trying to change or trying to influence. Uh, when you don't have that base experience, it takes you a long time to catch up. There's some things I think that you just never do get. When you so, said it as a leader, you want to relate to those people that are following you, and without that experience, you. I mean, you can maybe get that experience in that leadership position, but if you're not that person doing the dirty work to start with, how do you ever know? I mean, and I, I always think of Megan in her film. She started out the low man on the totem pole and just has worked every inch of her way up, and now she knows it inside and out, and you can tell that, and her clients can tell that. And it's a, it's a cool thing to see people like you and Megan that have started at the bottom and worked their way to the top and know exactly what they're doing inside and out and people follow that and want to follow that because they know that you know what you're talking about well and i think as someone who has been a follower of someone before me you know looking to my leader i have a lot more respect for them as they're telling me something to do because i know that they've already been through it rick had brought a, a leadership uh, philosophy that he's kind of wrote down over the years and we'll we'll post that in show notes and stuff too so people can really get to see that and because i think it's it will be it'd be interesting to me i want to keep that if you made copies i want to keep one but oh the question i want to ask next and it has to do with some leadership and it's um owning your mistakes i'm sure along the way you've probably made, made mistakes i've learned that in, since starting the business out i'm in not only just the business, the, just the life in general, I've made tons of mistakes. But you can either learn from them or you can dwell on them. Exactly. Tell me a little bit about, you know, in the military, in law enforcement, how do you, you know, when you make mistakes, what is your thought process after you make a mistake? I believe you should own them. You, uh, one of the one of the points the you know the leadership philosophies basically I've lived over the years is you accept blame for your mistakes, and I've always believed you've always heard that saying that stuff rolls downhill. Uh, everybody's heard that before at some point in their life. I'm telling you, I believe that's a leadership cop out. Uh, when you're the one in charge. That's where the responsibility rests. That doesn't mean you don't hold the people accountable, uh, you know, if it's a major mistake or something like that. And if you're the one that made the mistake, you need to be accountable for the, the one there. But uh, to share the blame across the entire organization doesn't do anything but tear down your morale and mm -hmm. all those kind of things. And that's why it's important that they know the boss will accept the mistakes the responsibility for its own mistakes, I think it builds a degree of respect uh, there. Of course, you don't want to make and a whole trust. lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We just don't make the same one over, over and over and yeah. over again. Yeah. Exactly. But it builds trust. I think it, it does. doesn't only build respect, but it builds trust, and then it solidifies people to want to follow you. So that's right. fantastic. I think that that's it's a real important thing, and that's, you know, 
we talk about that, you know, stuff rolling downhill. It doesn't. It shouldn't. There are certain things, especially in large organizations, that when it rolls to your desk, that's where it needs to stop. Because mm -hmm. your people don't need to be put through the stress or other things about it, especially if there's nothing they can do about it. Which I think our human nature is to be like, oh, no, that wasn't me. Or hopefully no one will notice that. And so we're going to hide it in this closet. But I tell Chris all the time, like, if I make a mistake, I want all the monsters out of the closet. I want everyone to know, yell it from the rooftops. I made a mistake. Let's correct it. You know, how are we going to correct this? And I don't want to wake up way. in the middle of the night worried about it. Yes. Get it over right. yes. It's so hard. Place that blame on yourself. At the end of the day, I think it's so much better and people respect you so much more than if you were to try to place blame on someone else. Really, it is okay to fail. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to say those are your mistakes. And I don't think a lot of people see that. And so having someone, especially in your role, and I'm not saying that you made a ton of mistakes, so I don't want to get locked on that <laughs> or made any mistakes, but having someone who is able to say, I made a mistake and this is how we're going to fix it. Not a lot of people get to see that. Uh, so you brought it up a few times and I think it was every time that you have brought it up was the first thing you brought up was your faith. Can you talk a little bit about your faith and how it is a part of who you are and your success that you've had? Absolutely. I would say that, uh, you know, not only was I fortunate enough to have been raised in a strong uh, Christian family, uh, you know, I accepted Christ when I was young. Uh, and uh, that has been kind of the center of all of my, everything that I've done. But you want to let that faith shine to the point they realize that, you know, maybe that's something that I want to know about. I want to mm -hmm. be part of. And uh, I've always been very close to, you know, our, our chaplains over the years, you know, with, with both both services and our, and our pastors, as far as, uh, you know, kind of helping you stay grounded in, in that. Because uh, both of the, you know, the professions that, uh, that I've had in a, a lifetime have a, a high chance for folks to drift off into other other areas that they shouldn't be in. And so uh, being successful as a leader, I think in some ways uh, people have recognized that faith that you've had. And so uh, that ethics, that character that went behind it, uh, they were kind of willing to follow, follow, at least give you a chance. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. no, I, I mean, just leading by example and, and letting that, that's probably the best way to that, it. Letting that speak for itself and that's that's your witness to, to people and you hope that they you hope that they at some point in time ask you about it yeah right. you know, so yeah. it's not like you're trying to shove it down their throat mm -hmm. yeah. 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 one question that we like to ask our guests is and you brought up a couple of people here and there who were influential in your career and where you got to today but could you speak on do you have any person who was a mentor through for you throughout your career Oh gosh, there's so many of them. And that's okay if there are more than one. You know, uh, my father uh, talked about you know uh, one of the battalion commanders, but there have been several of those in the military that's over the years. Uh, in law enforcement, uh, I would say that uh, I had several bosses in the law enforcement field that uh, had, had been mentors to, uh, to me over the years. Uh, Rodney Burroughs, which lives up here in, in City, uh, he was uh, one of my captains over the years, one of my commanders. He was a, he was a great mentor to me. Uh, over the years, you know, sometimes some of the people that work for you at some point in time can become a mentor. Maybe you mentor each other both. You know, Commissioner Thompson, uh, you know, at one point in time, Mike worked for me. 
and then I worked for him. <laughs> That's a good <laughs> lesson. A good lesson, lesson learned. Yes. Lesson. We were always all very proud of, proud of each other's accomplishments. Both of us achieved two star level in the military, and uh, you know uh, I was just assistant commissioner in chief uh, while he was uh, there at the patrol, and I uh, felt like we had a really great run uh, for the time that we were there. So uh, he would be one I would consider definitely being a, a, a mentor. Had some sergeant majors over the years in the military that was uh, great mentors to me that uh, that uh, helped uh, kind of teach me both as a lieutenant and young officer coming up through the through the ranks and the military kind of you know staying connected to the to you know the people who are actually doing the work and so uh, I think those were important things. Mm -hmm. so. Talk a little bit about <clears throat> I mean you you spoke on mentors all through the interview so far. Talk a little bit about how important mentorship is to you and, you know, in business, I, I look to a lot of, that's the whole reason that we're doing this podcast is we want mentors that have been there and are successful, especially in the military though, how important is mentorship? Mentorship is a, was huge. You know, you always had that person that was, you know, can kind of show you the way and, and teach you. Uh, but because I had the opportunity, if I was going to talk about, you know, you know, the mentors early, uh, you know, in business, especially because I started off working in a grocery store, mm -hmm. you know, when I first, first started off. And my father-in-law was my boss. No, he wasn't nice. father-in-law yet at the time. <laughs> There's a whole story goes behind that. But, but uh, as a mentor, uh, I had my father and my father-in-law, as far as in the business world, was probably one of the best mentors I ever had. He... Uh, he knew how to treat people. Mm -hmm. He, you know, he, he had his customers. We took care of the customers and all the things that was that you, that you did there. But then the people that were in the background, I, I think a lot of the way that I deal with my leadership philosophy, even though I've been taught and trained, been to all kinds of schools and things like that over the years, I can really boil it all back down to probably that point in time there, uh, as far as the what I saw just in the example that the man provided for us. He was, uh, you know, he was strong when he needed to be. Uh, he was understanding. Uh, he worked with people. He worked with his people. He wasn't afraid to pick up a pick up a broom or do the other stuff like that with the, the rest of the folks out there. Uh, was just a, just a solid. A solid guy. Uh, he also had a military background at one point in time. So uh, it was a. Uh, uh, there's many mentors that you have, and I've I even hated to that I said the word of a few out there, but there's there's been so many over over the years. There's, mm -hmm. there's not been any one mentor that was the person that just was like the, the light bulb come off. I think it's important to people that are looking for a mentor that they realize that that they need to look at the things that they see a lot of good in Megan and they might not see some things that they necessarily like. I see a lot of good in Chris. They might see some things they don't like. Take the good and then make it yours. Mm -hmm. Separate that. Lots of times when you all look at like leadership process and stuff like that, a lot of the things, if you look close enough, you have seen them before. 
they were good things that it's like that's something I need to mm-hmm. I need to use for the future. That's something I need to kind of remember and I need to try to emulate. Uh, those are things I need to be reminded of. So I'm right. to go yeah. <laughs> a couple of times, and you, you, you'll find those in different things. You've had people that say it to you in a staff call. You've had that guy you've seen that example and he's led um you've read a book someplace and you've you've taken that oh i don't know don't take that directly out of out of a quote uh there uh i think those are all important you know i think it's also important to you know uh, especially in the world we live in today i'll use use the word diversity it's very important for us to understand the cultures and the places that everybody comes from (laughs) We build this team on this whirling ball out in space uh, uh, together. So we all are breathing the same air, and we deal with we 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 are are God's creatures. And uh, oh, by the way, I don't care if you're in Afghanistan and you're talking to a, a Bedouin that's out in the out in the uh, desert. He may not have the education you do, but I guarantee he's just as smart. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, you know, by the way, you need to understand him before you can do anything to help him. So, oh, by the way, uh, that person that's sitting next to you that may not look like you has a lot to offer. Mm-hmm. And if you leave that, if you leave that on the, on the, don't put it on the table. It's something that uh, you'll never get back. And oh, by the way, you won't build the trust. So, uh, I mean, I say that, I think that's extremely important when you're looking at the diversity of what we do. Yeah. yeah so. All right. So the kind of the last question we'd like to ask people is this is the Legacy Builder podcast. We're all legacy builders. What is it that you want to leave as your legacy? What do you think your legacy will be once you're gone? I want probably my family and the people to know that uh, I committed my life service to my family. You know, dad and grandpa was a good man. I think uh, that's that's enough for me. Uh, doesn't need to be anything grand or anything like that. I think just leaving a legacy of self-sufficient, red-blooded American kids behind that are going to be able to go out and make an impact in the world, I think is probably more important to me than anything. Those those children, those grandchildren, I think, will be the legacy that you hope to leave behind. I love that. Yeah. And we were talking before the podcast had started. I've known you since probably I was an infant, you know. Uh, Maybe before you were. Yeah, before I was even born. <laughs> in my mom's belly. Um, but I would say all of those things, you know, that really your family would characterize you as being hardworking and loving them and being a public servant. And I think that you have definitely passed that on to your children and they are passing it on to your grandchildren. So I think you're doing a great job with that. Thank you. Yeah, no doubt. And like my, what I'm taking away from this interview and what I have taken away just watching you and your family is that, you know, we talked a lot about it and I kind of picked your brain on it. And it was funny that you brought something that had on there was your leadership. And uh, I appreciate that leadership that you have shown us in our community and in the service that you've done. That leadership is very, very appreciated. And thank thank you you for all the service that you've done for us. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to come out and talk with Megan. You had to stop just lounging around in retirement (laughs) to come over here. I was actually doing that. (laughs) We sure appreciate you coming out. Yes. You bet.
Wow, what an impressive uh, person to sit down and get to really dig into what made him successful. Uh, those are the kind of, of people that really inspire me, and I think others can really learn from uh, and take and push themselves to be better. Really enjoyed that conversation. Could just love to hear the story of how he really did work his way from the bottom all the way to the top. And it was all just because he did have unwavering faith and his leadership skills. He worked by an ethics code that served him well. Just some really great tidbits in this episode. Um, and I am only going to have cat loyalty from now on anywhere I work. Like, only loyal to the house. I loved that little bit. Well, that does it for the seventh episode of the Legacy Builder Podcast. Thank you for joining us today and getting to listen to Mr. Rick Adams. You know, his legacy of committed life to service and family is a great one to leave. And, you know, the leadership skills that he learned along the way are what I'm really going to take away uh, from the sit-down interview with him today and really be able to try to implement those into my life and into my business and help me be more successful. So thank you for joining us today. And I'm going to leave you with what I leave you with every episode of the Legacy Builder Podcast. And that is, what is your legacy? Because we are all legacy builders.